Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. been in the book of Acts because we've wanted to remember that God has sent us into the world and uh, that he sent us to share the gospel in other parts of the world, even in those places that are really difficult to get to and reach. But you may remember that Fellowship Bible Church's vision statement says this, together strengthening you to change your world for Christ, which means we understand that not only should we be going out there. But tomorrow morning, some of you are going to go where you normally go to minister the word there. And that could be your workplace, that could be your school place, that could be wherever you are. We want to have you prepared there as well. And that's why we're going to take in this kind of change your world part, we pause in the book of Acts to say there's three things you really need to understand. We'll talk about one now, we'll talk about one in uh, January, and we'll talk about one in April. And there's some other parts that work with that, which you'll hear in a second. But here's what you need to know. First of all, you're going to have to know the Bible, right? So that's what the next couple weeks are going to be about. That's why the name of our church, by the way, just say it with me, is Fellowship what? Bible Church. Yeah, that's right. Um, It's Fellowship Bible Church. Um, I remember a number of years ago, we had some young people here who were playing basketball in the gym from the community. And uh, one of them came over and um, he said to me, he's a high school kid, and he says to me, um, I introduced myself as one of the pastors here, and he said, oh, you own this church? Okay. Uh, No, I don't own the church, all right? Um, So I corrected that theology pretty quickly, but by way of reminder, it isn't even about our personalities that run this church. It's about the fact that we are Fellowship Bible Church. The second part that you're going to have to know to change your world is a focus on prayer, Because sometimes we're trying so hard to help someone see that they need Christ or to minister to them that we forget that one of the most vital dynamics we can do is pray. And so in January, we're going to set up, beginning of the year, we're going to set apart a couple, three weeks or so to just concentrate on that. And there's some components that will shape out of that on our Sunday mornings too. And then finally, one of the things you must understand if you're about to try to see that you would have impact and change your world for Christ, is you're going to have to understand the heart of man. And so we will talk through that in April, right after Easter, and how those desires that are internal, we'll tap a little bit of that next week, but how those desires are really what we're after. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, old things have passed away. God goes after the heart. Ezekiel 36 says that he took out of us a stone of a heart of stone and he put into us when we become believers in Jesus a heart of flesh, a living heart, okay? So we have to kind of unpack that and talk about that. And I'm delighted, I've been interacting with my good friend Nicholas Ellen, who's a pastor down in Houston, who probably understands the inner part of man better than anybody I've ever met. And so we're hoping to have him with us here in April, and there'll be some seminars with that. All of that to say, while we look at the world we want to reach for Christ, we also want to strengthen you to change your world for Christ, okay? So um, we live in an era, let me just say it, where people don't think the Bible is relevant. They don't think it has any purpose. And so it's really important for us as Christians to just pause and say, where does the Bible, how am I to understand the Bible? I mean, you can Google anything and find anything, right? And you don't know if it's true or if it's not true. But here's the thing. 
The Word of God is unchanging, okay? So we want to answer this question today, how are we to understand the Bible? And, and we're going to walk through some things that aren't really going to feel like a sermon too much. So just kind of stay with me in that. Hopefully you'll learn a few things. But I want to start out by focusing on a particular passage in Psalm 119 for our reading this morning. Psalm 119, verse 97. So will you stand with me as we read the word together? Psalm 119, verse 97. I'll pick up the reading there. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth." Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's just answer this question. How are we to understand the Bible? Okay? How are we to understand the Bible? And there's three things I want to point out to you that kind of prepare you for having conversations in your world tomorrow. So when you face someone, they say, what, what, you quote the Bible? Like, what is that about? Okay. There's three things I want you to understand about the Bible. First of all, the Bible is an ancient work. We must understand the past, not disregard it. Let me explain that statement real quickly. We acknowledge the Bible as an ancient work. Parts of it were written 3,500 years ago. Okay? So what you're holding in your hand or on your phone is in some ways 3,500 years old. Okay? Just ponder that um, for just a moment. Okay? And, and you thought the iPhone was a recent uh, discovery. Okay? What's on it is 3,500 years old. Here's the point. Some people would say, listen, that's the past. We know so much more now that because we know so much more now, it, it overrides what's in the past. But that's not true. What we understand is that the Bible is an ancient work, so we must understand the past to which it was written, not simply disregard the Bible because it's from the past. Number two, the Bible is a written work. We must diligently study to discover its meaning. We must diligently study to discover its meaning. There's a host of resources available to you here, but just know this, that because it is written in black letters on a white page, because the Bible is written, therefore, once you enter language, there's meaning involved. And therefore, you can misunderstand and misinterpret the meaning of the Scripture as well. The Bible is a written work. Once words are involved, you have to study to discover its meaning. And then finally, the Bible is a supernatural work. We must surrender to ensure the greatest life change. Listen, I have seen over and over again how the Bible just opened up to someone, causes them to say, whoa, I never saw that before. But I also know this, that when someone surrenders to the word, they see it, they say, whoa, I believe that. That's what I got to do. I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm just going to surrender the Lord in this. When they see the word working like that, that's where the greatest life change happens. Listen, the Bible's going to, as Hebrews 4 says, it's going to divide your thoughts and intentions. It's going to show you where your intentions are. It's going to do something that no other book can do because it is supernatural. And we'll unpack that in just a second. So let's take this first one. Um, the Bible is an ancient work. We must understand the past, not disregard it, okay? So when someone says, well, you believe the Bible, okay? 
Yeah, I believe the Bible. And if they say, well, it's just an old book, here's my answer to that, okay? I like to introduce people to what I call Bible Town and My Town, okay? Bible Town is over here on this other side of the river, okay? And My Town is over here. You may not be able to see it here, but there's a little billboard that, there that says, you are here, okay? That's where we are. We're in 2023, and this is where we are. This is my town. This is where I live, right? And I mean by that, I'm using this as a picture, right? I mean, this is where I live in contemporary society today. But the Bible was written back in Bible town, okay? And the river that runs between them, which doesn't have a bridge here, has three elements in it. It has time, it has culture, and it has language, which means it's an old book, so I have to understand time, I have to understand culture, and I have to understand language. And I have to be able to cross that river before I just say, oh, this is what it means to me, right? I have to understand that it meant something to Nehemiah, it meant something to Ezra, it meant something to the children of Israel, it meant something to the woman at the well. Those words meant something in a place in time, okay? I don't want to disregard it. So I say this. The Bible is an ancient work. We must understand the past, not disregard it. So let's talk about time just briefly. It was written up to 3,500 years ago. Parts of it were written 2,000 years ago. Now, for just a moment, help me out. What are some things that didn't exist 3,500 years ago? This is where you participate. I'm going to start over here, okay? Once an answer is given, you can't give it, give it again, okay? Over here. Cell phones, okay? Probably the number one answer for play and family feuds, cell phones, all right? Some of you are saying, man, I wish I'd have lived 3,500 years ago. Okay, yes, in the back, what do you got? Cars, okay, so we got communication, we have transportation, okay? What else didn't exist 3,500 years ago? Look at this, they took all the good answers, didn't they? Okay. Right here, what didn't exist? Yes, in the back. Printing, ooh, that's great. Printing didn't exist, which meant that the Word of God, if you had it, was recorded on something known as papyrus, which was, which was expensive. And that's, uh, by the way, I don't even have time for this tangent, but I've already started it. Okay, here we go. That's why when the Bible was initially recorded on some of those things, you actually see ink coming through that had things like shopping list on it because they recorded copies, not the originals, copies of the Scripture onto old shopping list things because paper was so expensive that you just kind of rubbed it off and that ink stained and it comes back through and so it can get a little confusing. I don't know what that has to do with anything. Okay, printing didn't exist. Right here, what didn't exist 3,500 years ago? TV, okay. Another means of communication. Finally over here. Pardon me? Electricity. I thought you said Frisbees, Okay. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, I don't think they existed either, but whatever, whatever, okay. Okay, just look at all the things that didn't exist. Now stop right there, okay? Because people will say to you, see, that's why the Bible can't be relevant, because none of these things existed. Now for just a moment, put your thinking caps back on. What did exist 3,500 years ago that exists today? Relationships. War. Pretty prevalent, huh? What else? Sin, murder, conflict. Let me give you the big one. Desires. The desires of your heart existed when Adam and Eve made their choices. All those things existed. 
And that's why the Bible, though it's an ancient work, is not irrelevant. It is perfectly relevant because of that time. It was written 3,500 years ago. How about this, culture? The Bible was written in a Middle Eastern culture, not a Western culture. If you're unfamiliar with that, you might say, well, we're in an Eastern culture because we live in New Jersey. That's not what I mean by this, okay? Middle Eastern culture, meaning Asia and uh, Israel and those areas over there, that's where the Bible was written, and it was an entirely different culture. Let me give you two distinctions real quickly. The most important distinction between Western culture, that is America, and the rest of Eastern culture, Middle Eastern culture, is that, is that in America, we are very focused on self. We are independent. We choose to do things for the exaltation of ourselves, okay? I'm just telling you, that is not the way it is in the rest of the world. The rest of the world makes decisions, particularly in Asia or Middle Eastern culture, kind of as a group, not as an individual. And just for a moment, ponder that. I remember when that first, when that first struck me, I was teaching in Korea, while it's got a lot of Western tendencies uh, there in South Korea, the, the, the culture isn't. The culture is still Asian or Middle Eastern and, or Eastern. And, and I remember that there were about 50 students in the classroom. There was a Canadian, there was an American, there was somebody from France, and the rest were all Korean students. Right? And I was teaching in English, and I would ask a question. And the only people that would answer me, up comes the American's hand. Wow, just like that, up comes the Canadian's hand. Up comes even the French guy's hand. They were up, like, oh, we got an answer. And I kept thinking, like, am I not communicating? And then one of the instructors said, Phil, you have to understand, the Asian population is waiting to see what everybody else will do because they make decisions together as a team, not as individuals. And that's not a criticism, that's just the culture. And I remember thinking, wow, that is so different. Like, I thought it was me, and really it wasn't. It was me not understanding the culture. And so I began to kind of massage that a little bit as I would teach. I would work with the group as opposed to the individual. And the same thing would always happen. If I ever ask a question, first hand up was the American. Okay? Because you and I are used to operating as individuals. But the Bible was written to a culture that didn't operate like that. Secondly, the Middle Eastern culture has a very, very strong emphasis on family. We do too, but not like that, okay? Not like that. The traditions of family were very deep and ran very deep. And that's why when you're reading the book of Genesis, all of a sudden you see this father in Jacob who gives blessings to each of his sons. The, the whole core of the end of Genesis is like, this is what's going to happen. It's a blessing, Yet, we don't really think that way. We don't think in terms of the core family, blessing everybody at once. We think in terms of graduation or something with an individual, okay? So there's distinction in culture. Finally, there's this. There's a distinction in language. It was originally recorded in the ancient Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. 267 verses in the Bible are in Aramaic. They're not even in Hebrew or Greek. So guess what? There's a good chance that nobody in this room knows all three of those languages, so when we read an English translation, and there's very good English translations, we are reading someone who is like a bilingual person who's, who the translators know that language in its original context, and they're bringing across English words to us. So we just want to think in terms of language. And by the way, even that language changes, right? Think about it for a moment. Um, our words in English have changed radically even in our lifetime. 
And I don't need to tell you that. Like, go talk to a seventh grader. You'll get a whole new vocabulary, right? And it doesn't mean anything like what you meant it to mean. So imagine momentarily when you read certain words in the King James written 400 years ago, you're reading English words that had a different definition 400 years ago. Um, that's why when you read in Nehemiah 1 in the King James, you'll read, for instance, that God was an awful God. You say, whoa, why was God an awful God? Because awful 400 years ago meant the word awesome today, right? You have to understand that when you're reading you are also trying to understand and cross over those languages. And here's the point. What I like to do is say, from Bible town to my town, there's a bridge. And the bridge is what I call the bridge of application. I'm going to cross from all of that understanding and say, now that I know what it means to them, I can know what it means to me. Notice this. I don't try to swim that river. I don't try to jump that river. I have to first understand, to understand the text, I have to go back to Bible town and understand what it meant to them. You say, Phil, this is way, way too difficult and complicated. I just want to open up my Bible, take a verse tomorrow morning, and, and go out and do it, okay? I just want to remind you, this is how the Spirit of God uses the Word of God as we understand it in our lives, right? Let me take you to number two. The Bible is a written work. We must diligently study to discover meaning, okay? We must diligently study to discover meaning, now, right about now, some of you are saying, uh, I'm not going to seminary, um, I can't do all this stuff, and so I just want to remind you that that's not, the Bible is open to all of us, but again, we want to study because 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent, study to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If it can be rightly divided, then just finish it for me, it can be what? Wrongly divided. That's exactly right. So you and I want to make sure that we're rightly dividing the word of truth. You say, Phil, I was never a great student, okay? I'm going to put my hand up. If you were to ask me, were you a great student? Nope, nope. Here's a secret that won't be a secret anymore because I'm about to tell the entire congregation, okay? I got into seminary on academic probation, okay? So any of those of you who were C's and had a few other lower grades <laughs> in your background, okay, I had a few of those, right? So I wasn't a great student, but I did understand that if I could understand the Bible, I could begin to explain the things that God was saying from the Bible. And my focus became entirely different when I went to seminary. Here's the point. You may not have been a, bad stu a good, great student in the past, but it doesn't mean you can't become a good student of the Word. Be diligent to study to present yourself approved to God. When it comes to understanding the written work, that is what the Bible is. How am I going to diligently study it? Three things matter to me. The big picture, the details, the purpose. So I'm just going to give you like a 10,000-foot view, okay? The big picture, the details, the purpose. Now, I want to talk about the big picture briefly. Some of you have heard this material before, but that's okay. It was probably several weeks ago, and you've already forgotten it, so I'll repeat it, okay? Here we go. The big picture is most people do not understand how the Bible works at all, okay? They just know there's books in there that have names, sometimes weird names, hard names to pronounce, right? Like Ruth, something like that. I'm kidding, all right? Um, like Hezekiah, you say, Hezekiah isn't a book of the Bible. That's correct, you're a Bible scholar. Okay, you get it, okay? So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see for just a moment the big picture because the big picture means this. I need to know where your Bible passage fits into the story or else it's out of context. And this always happens. You know this personally. Absolutely, you know this personally. 
How many of you have been quoted at some point, someone said, I heard you said, and you said, that is what I said, but it's not what I, there you go, just like that. You know it intuitively, that all a person has to do is take out of context what you said to change the meaning. So the big picture is how we keep it in context now. Bible's divided into two, book, two portions, the Old Testament, the New Testament. The Old Testament has 17 historical books, five poetical books, and 17 prophetic books. For just a moment, go with me to your, if you have your Bible here, go with me to your table of contents, okay? You know, that's the part you look up when we ask you to look up a book in the Bible, but you don't let anybody see that you're looking, okay? That's what the table of contents is there for. But I want to use it differently this morning, okay? I want to show you something that you may not have known. If I look at the Old Testament, starting with Genesis, I see that the first 17 books running from Genesis down to the book of Esther, those are my 17 historical books. The Bible isn't reading just like uh, an encyclopedia or, or, or a novel, okay? Those are my 17 historical books. That's followed by what we call five poetry books. Poetry sounds different than his, history does, okay? You got Job, you got uh, Psalms, you got Proverbs, you got Ecclesiastes, you have Song of Solomon. And then that's followed by 17 prophetic books. Right? Now, here's what I want to teach you a secret. That if you look at the historical books and you want to know how the Old Testament works, you can capture the history of the Old Testament on only 11 books, and the other ones somewhat repeat what's going on in the other books. You say, why do you do that? That's so confusing. I'm about to make it less confusing, okay? There's your 11 primary history books. You can read Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, and you have the history. You say, where does Ruth fit? Ruth fits into the book of Judges. Where does Esther fit? Esther fits into the book of Ezra. Where does 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles fit? They fit back into the Kings. All of that is there as repetitive material. But here's where the history runs, okay? So let me give you one word, big picture stuff, one word to describe each of those. And I'll even give you a secret. You can't really see it, but I wrote those words in my table of contents right next to the book, okay? So that when I look at the book, even though I've been in the Bible for years, I remember, oh yeah, that's what that book is about. Here we go, key words. Genesis is the book of beginnings. There's four, peop- there's four events, there's four people that are significant in the book of Genesis. The four events are creation, fall, flood, and the nations are the Tower of Babel. That's Genesis 1 through 11. And then you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's the rest of the book, okay? But a lot of stuff begins in the book of Genesis, and that's what Genesis means, beginning. Exodus sounds like exit, and that's because the children of Israel are now down in Egypt, and the book of Exodus is them exiting that land and heading back to the promised land, except for the fact that they don't get lost because it's not a big distance, but they do lose their faith. And by the time they get right on the edge of the promised land, 12 spies go in. This is the story told in the book of Numbers. 10 say, we can't take it. 2 say, we can take it. The majority wins. And so God has them wander in the book of Numbers in the wilderness. And then Joshua comes and they move into the land over the River Jordan. There's conquests there and you can see that they conquer the land. This is really relevant in the world in which we live today, right? This is 33,000, 3,300 years ago when they actually take the land. It's not something that happened a generation ago or in 1950. It, it happened way back then. The Israelites take the promised land. However, the book of Judges 
That's the book Chaos, and that's because it says that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, just let me tell you this, Disney's not making a movie out of that book anytime soon, okay? There is R-rated material throughout that book. And you say, what's that doing in the Bible? Okay. The Bible's about God reaching people with problems, okay? And there's a lot of people with problems in the book of Judges, because they're seeking to do what is right in their own eyes. I want to tie these next four together. You can say them, bad king, good king, two math terms, division, subtraction. Bad king is King Saul. He becomes the king in 1 Samuel. Good king is King David. Even though he does some bad things, God says he's a man after his own heart. He becomes the king in 2 Samuel. And then there's division and subtraction. The kingdom is divided in uh, 1 Kings, and in 2 Kings, the nations, both Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, are subtracted out of the nation. 722 for Israel, 586 for Judah, the southern kingdom. They're taken out, okay? So that's how you remember it, right there in my Bible. Bad king, good king, division, subtraction. Now, let me just give you the last two, Ezra and Nehemiah. Because they were taken out of the land for 70 years, when they came back, two things had happened. The temple was destroyed and the walls of Jerusalem were torn down. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are about first rebuilding the temple and then rebuilding the walls. Okay. Now, that's a 10,000-foot view. There you have the Old Testament in 11 key words. Right? Beginnings, exit, wanderings, conquest, chaos, bad king, good king, uh, division, subtraction, temple, and walls. Okay? But all of that is God reaching towards men. And then we get to the New Testament. This is it. Pay attention. I'm going to be done in in 120 seconds. Okay. Here we go. There's 400 years between before Jesus. That's between the Old Testament and New Testament. When you open up your Bible and you hit the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and you go to the New Testament, if you didn't know this, there's 400 years in there. That is twice as long as America's existed as a nation. Okay. Just let that thought settle in for a little bit. When you were dropping stuff like cell phones and cars and all of that, all of that's only taken place, some of it's only taken place in the last 150 years. You got 400 years and a lot of stuff happens. Pharisees show up, Sadducees show up, uh, other groups show up. Rome all of a sudden builds roads so everybody can travel. Like all that stuff's happening between the page of your Old Testament and New Testament. But the New Testament is all about Jesus and here it is. The story of Jesus is covered in four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's where the Gospel is covered. You can kind of see the story of Jesus in that upper one. We'll cover that in future days. The mission of Jesus is captured in Acts chapter 1. Remember, we studied this where Jesus said, listen, you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm sending you out. The church of Jesus runs from Acts 2 to Revelation chapter 3. You say, wait, wait a minute. I thought Revelation was all about the end times, not the first two chapters. They're about churches, seven churches. They're talking about these churches where people gathered. And then the return of Jesus is told in Revelation 4 through 22. Here's the thing. If you know your Old Testament and you kind of know your New Testament, you already got a feel for how things are going to fit in the Bible. That's the big picture. Know where your passage fits in the story. Here's the second part. The details. Know what the words mean and how they relate to one another, okay? Know what the words mean and how they relate to one another. This isn't complicated, but you do have to study. You do have to kind of look and say, what repeats itself? What doesn't repeat itself? Let me show you one of my favorite verses. Hangs on my wall in my office. It goes like this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
In one word, in one phrase, I'm looking for three things that kind of sound alike. Oh, there it is. To study, to do, to teach. Notice how the words relate to one another. It's important that you study, but it's also important that you attempt to do these things before you teach them. Let me talk to parents for just a second. You're a parent. You're there having your Bible, Bible, quiet times open, okay? And then your son or daughter comes in as a child, and they do something that ticks you off, okay? And as opposed to, think in terms of James chapter 1, which says uh, that everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, you just flame up in anger, okay? And now you're trying to teach them to be patient while you're angry. Does anybody see a problem with this? Okay. That's right. We study, we practice it, and then we teach it. By the way, um, there's a little nuance here in the word to teach. If you're a teacher, just know this. It's not about you just assimilating, uh, disseminating information. Right? To teach, actually, in the Hebrew means to cause to learn. I love that. Teachers are responsible not just to get the information out, but to cause the student to learn. Right? I once asked a guy, listen, tell me your favorite professor. He was a guy who'd, uh, in one of my study groups, and he'd been to Princeton. He said, my favorite professor wasn't a professor. He was a high school teacher. And he was teaching us truths in, in science and f- about physics. And he said one day he came running into the room and he started throwing chairs away. He said, everybody get up, everybody get up. He said, he pulls all these chairs away and the chairs are, and we're all standing there. The whole class is standing there. And he runs to the chalkboard. He picks up a piece of chalk and he comes to the middle of the floor and he throws it down as hard as he can and it splinters and it goes everywhere. Okay? And he said, we're all like, what is happening? Like, should somebody call 911 or something, right? And he said, now tell me, what can you learn about the, the way the chalk has splintered and where it has gone? And he said, we're all like totally learning, right? A teacher is the person who causes the person to learn. They just don't dump the information. So if you're a teacher, let me just kind of re-encourage you. The Hebrew word means to cause to learn, okay? Pressure is on the teacher in some ways, not just the student. Finally, let me give you one last one. The purpose, know the writer's intention, don't re-engineer it, okay? When I first left seminary, I was invited, um, when I was looking for a job, I was invited all the way to New York, from California to New York, to teach a summer school class. And my, I kind of felt like my potential job depended on it, so I was totally ready, as ready as I could possibly be. I had overheads, I had notes, I had various things I was going to do, I knew the text, okay? And I'm all ready. And my mentor, the guy I always wanted to teach like, he was teaching there. And he came in one day and said, hey, Phil, I heard you're teaching the book of Nehemiah. And I said, yeah, yeah, really excited. I, I would have I, I just shown him all my stuff right there. Except he said to me, um, why was the book written? And I remember thinking, um, this is where I get an F on preparation, <laughs> okay? The simplest question. What was the purpose of the writer? What was their intention? Right. And I remember kind of hemming and hawing around. You know, you know how it is when you're saying something and you know that you don't really know and they know that you don't really know that kind of embarrassing, awkward moment. See, You have to understand why a book like Nehemiah was written or you might have a tendency to re-engineer it and make it mean whatever you want it to be. The book, you say, what was the book of Nehemiah? Why was it written, okay? It was written to show you that, that walls are far easier to rebuild than people. Okay? They rebuild the wall in 52 days, but the people 
They just can't hold it together. And while Nehemiah invests in the people, guess what? They still fall away and break all of the commandments by the end of the book. Okay, just like that. People are always harder to rebuild than people, than, than walls. So here's the thing. You want to know the writer's intention. You say, how am I going to know that? Come to some of these classes, okay? And you'll be able to start to figure that out as you understand certain resources that you have available to you. One final one. Here it is. The Bible is a supernatural work. We must surrender to ensure greatest life change. When you read the Bible, you just don't get lost in the study. You just don't get lost in the fact that it's an ancient work. You begin to understand that this book changes you. It changes you. It does what no other book does. It changes you. How many of you have a book that you have read more than once? Not the Bible. A book you've read more than once. Can I see your hands? Yeah. A lot of you. How many of you have sought to read that book of the Bible, that, that, that book, that book that you've read more than once, whether it's a novel, whatever it is, how many of you sought to read that book every single day? Like, why not? Because it's not a supernatural book. Okay. And yet the Bible does that. Here's a great question. I want you to watch, look around. How many of you have, have read something in the Bible one in a particular morning and found out that that's exactly the passage that you needed later in the day to share with someone or to encourage yourself? Can I see your hands? Yeah, hands everywhere, right? Why does that happen? It happens because the Bible just isn't any book. It's a supernatural book. So let me do two things real quick. Let me explain that. We don't discredit biblical miracles. We believe God did them, okay? So we don't discredit the miracles of the Bible. So when you're talking to somebody and they say, really? Like you believe that Noah built an ark? Like what is that? Like you believe God sent a flood? Like what is that? Like you believe that Jesus actually fed 5,000 people? You can say, no, our pastor taught that he fed 20,000 people, right? The, The point is, is that we don't discredit the biblical miracles. We believe God did them because this is a supernatural book. And by the way, This really came home this morning, Jason, when we sung that final song. We sung about the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. You do understand, that's a miracle, okay? You don't go down to the local morgue and expect them, the body to be missing because he's walking around downtown Philadelphia, okay? This is a miracle. Once you say, well, the Bible's just fairy tales and it's not really true, once you discount the miracles, Guess what? You got to do something with the resurrection. It can't be true either. And Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, then what hope do we have? So here's the thing. We we don't kind of tinker with the scriptures. We just say those are miracles and we believe them. And notice this. Hebrews communicates that. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How do we know it's salvation? It was declared by first by the Lord, and it was attested to those who heard, there's eyewitnesses, who God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. God did miracles to say, listen, this message in the Bible is a true message. By the way, I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says, those who believe in miracles are not denying that there is such a norm or rule. They are only saying that it can be suspended. A miracle is by definition an exception. Okay? So when someone says to you, yeah, I don't really believe it, say, listen, That's what makes it a miracle. You can either believe it or not believe it, but it doesn't change the fact that the Bible declares that it happened. Here's the second idea, and then we're done. We recognize that the living word is meant to impact how we live. That's right. 
When the word, when we read the word and we understand the word and the spirit takes that word that is understood and applies it, something's gonna happen, right? Here's the truth. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is gonna cut you up, right? And you want it to. Because you and I are deceived by what we want. By the way, this happens all the time. Isn't that what James says? Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted, neither tempts he any man. But everyone is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Our desires deceive us. And the word of God cuts through that and says, you're deceived and this is the right thing to do. It helps you discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You say, Phil, I don't want to know that, right? I'd rather just keep on doing what I'm doing. No, you don't. Can I take you back to Psalm 119 real quickly again? There we read, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Watch this. I will run in the way of your commandments. It's all about the word, okay? Why? Just say it. Say this last phrase with me. For you what? Set my heart free. That's right. Those desires that can never be satisfied. That part of you that says, why am I so negative all the time? Why am I struggling with this? Why do I struggle with that? Why do I struggle with discouragement? You want a heart that's set free. You want it. But it only comes when we bring our lives into submission to a supernatural book. That's right. And here's the point. That's how we set our heart free. Okay, that's the word of God. Just note this last one. The Bible is a supernatural work. We must surrender to ensure the greatest life change. That's how we want to think about it. Well, next week, coming back for classes, coming back as we talk about more about the Bible and as we get there um, in the next couple weeks. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for what it means. We pray that you would help us apply these truths this week. May we not be intimidated. May we just open up the Bible and read it in its plain, simple language. May we study where we can. May we ask others to help us understand. Lord, we want to grow and be like you. We want victory over these things that have captured our hearts, the discouragement that may come in or the self-pity that may come in or the struggles that we might have. We want to be set free, and we know that's only possible as your spirit, through Jesus, brings the word of God to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for the reminder even, as Justin shared this morning, that we can come and place our faith in him Thank you for the fact that you just didn't leave us there, but you brought us your word that gives careful instruction for how we can live and how we can change. Help us depend upon you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.